17th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, President Joe Biden announces additional military aid to Ukraine as President Vladimir Zelensky makes an impassioned plea to Congress. I do agree that this is unlikely to change the policy, but obviously it was a very effective speech. I thought he used great visuals to demonstrate the problems coming from the war. Turkey's foreign minister visits Moscow and Kyiv as Ankara steps up mediation efforts. Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu met in Moscow with his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov Wednesday. Cavusoglu pledged that Turkey will continue its diplomatic efforts. And a powerful earthquake jolts Japan's northeast coast. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. President Joe Biden branded Russian President Vladimir Putin a, quote, war criminal Wednesday, unquote, and announced an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine. That makes a total of $2 billion in such aid sent to Kiev since he took office more than a year ago. Biden said the new assistance includes 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems, 100 grenade launchers, 20 million rounds of small arms, ammunition and mortar rounds, and an unspecified number of drones. Biden spoke hours after Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky delivered a video address to members of the U.S. Congress in which he made an impassioned plea for the U.S. and the West to provide more help to save his young democracy. But as compelling as analysts say President Zelensky's speech was, it may not be enough to change current U.S. policy in Ukraine of not deploying troops and enforcing a no-fly zone. For more, I spoke with Robert Utung, a professor of international affairs at George Washington University School of International Affairs. I do agree that this is unlikely to change the policy, but obviously it was a very effective speech. I thought he used great visuals to demonstrate the problems coming from the war. So I think he's going to get as much as he possibly could from something like that, which is the full support of the Congress and as much military aid as Biden feels comfortable providing. Some analysts say it's ironic that he took an outsider, a president of Ukraine, to finally get Democrats and Republicans agreeing and working together. Well, it does seem like it's going to be very difficult to bring the Democrats and Republicans together given the polarized nature of our politics these days. But I think one thing is that Zelensky, given his background as an entertainer, is very effective at communicating. He understands the audience that he's working with and he understands how to design messages, influence the behavior of those audiences. So I think he's getting as much as any Ukrainian president could get out. What more can the U.S. give? I think the key is providing those weapons that is clearly helping the Ukrainian military stop the Russian advance. And so th- those singers and javelins seem to be, you know, what's most needed and particularly effective. Obviously, if we gave the Ukrainians more drones, more ways of tracking Russian aircraft, destroying them, that would probably be helpful. I'm not sure to what extent Biden's going to do that. Also rallying the international community, continuing to support Ukraine. For example, Biden's going to Europe next week and we'll be bolstering the allies response working with the europeans to provide energy to them because if they try and reduce their reliance on russian energy they're going to need different sources so that's going to be very important too so to the extent that biden can in the short term help increase in energy supplies for europeans to get away from russian energy and in the longer term thinking of ways to reduce reliance on russian fossil fuels in general i think that's going to be very important so short term obviously biden's doing as much 
as he can, sort of trying not to provoke Russia. And then in the longer term, there's going to be a lot more that we can do in terms of energy economics. What do you make of President Biden referring to the Russian president as, quote, a war criminal? Well, that's a major change in the way Biden's been talking. And I think clearly the videos and the other images we've been seeing coming out of Ukraine, attacking maternity hospitals, shelling residential areas of Ukrainian cities, those are definitely war crimes. And so it makes sense to call a spade a spade in this case and, and really talk about the kinds of criminality that this war is. That's certainly what the Ukrainian people are seeing, and they're getting that message out to the rest of the world to we're seeing the kind of brutality that Putin is inflicting on them. So I think Biden is right to speak honestly and truthfully about what's happening on the ground. And that's the only way we're going to be able to make coherent policy in response. How do you think this tough talk for President Biden will be received in Moscow, especially President Vladimir Putin? Will this embolden him or will he just step back? I think one way to understand Putin is basically just he's a bully. He's only going to stop pushing, stop his aggression when he comes up against an unstoppable force. And I think that's what the Ukrainian soldiers and civilians have provided and using whatever resources they have to stop the Russian advance and try and limit their gains as much as possible. And I think the same has to be true Biden the West. That's Robert Ertung, a professor of international affairs at George Washington University School of International Affairs. He spoke with me from Arlington, Virginia. Some of the three million Ukrainian refugees who have managed to escape the war are now moving beyond Poland and Eastern Europe to the farthest stretches of the continent. That includes Spain, which is already home to a community of 100,000 Ukrainians. John Spear narrates this report by Alfonso Bieto in the Catalonia region. The Spanish government does not have exact numbers of Ukrainian refugees arriving in Spain. Many of them have family ties in the country and use this network to find support. The European Union's response to the Ukrainian refugees is very different from that to the refugee influx that followed the Syrian conflict. This time, the EU member states have decided to activate a law that will allow Ukrainians to get residence permits for at least one year. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez has called for an agreement among Spain's regions to deal with the humanitarian crisis. Un acuerdo para que organicemos la solidaridad. An agreement for us to collaborate and cooperate in accommodating refugees that Spain is already receiving, like many other countries, in the face of the greatest humanitarian crisis that Europe is experiencing since the Second World War. There are, he says, already three million displaced people. Since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, more than 100,000 Ukrainians have made Spain their home. Those coming now seek the support of relatives in the country, especially in towns such as Gisona in northeast Spain, where one in seven inhabitants is Ukrainian. The government has made arrangements for children to attend schools. Joao Mas Bosch is Gisona's mayor. Catalonia has already established the protocols for the incorporation of these boys and girls into ordinary schools, and at this moment, he says, they are already attending. Tetiana Miacortina has come with her son to see a doctor. They arrived after a 10-day drive from Kyiv, having fled the capital after hearing the first bombardments. When we travelled through the territory of Ukraine, we passed many checkpoints. At all control points, they were verifying documentation, and so our trip was very long. We spent the nights, she says, in hidden places because of many bombings. During these nights, we were with the children in underground places, hidden from the bombing.
Her husband remains in Kyiv because of a government order that prevents men between 18 and 60 from leaving Ukraine so they can defend the country. Kisona resident Mikola Grinkiv has turned his cyber cafe into a humanitarian aid warehouse. From there, he organizes truck deliveries to Ukraine. He is working to collect essentials such as medicine so that Ukraine can spend more of its resources to buy weapons to defend itself. They need a lot of military ammunition. What happens is that normal people cannot buy it. Ukraine must do it in agreement between the governments. If we help with medicines, he says, we can release the funds of our government. Those who arrive can look for work immediately. This is a town with an agricultural cooperative that employs more than 5,000 people and where many Ukrainians already work. For Alfonso Beato in Gisona, Spain, John Spear, VOA News. Turkey's foreign minister is visiting Moscow and Kyiv this week as Ankara steps of efforts to mediate. For VOA, Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu met in Moscow with his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov Wednesday. Cavusoglu pledged that Turkey would continue its diplomatic efforts to end the fighting in Ukraine. Cavusoglu is also visiting Kiev. While Ankara has close ties with both Kiev and Moscow, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has strongly condemned Russia's assault on Ukraine closing access to the Black Sea to most of Russia's warships. Such moves receive strong plaudits from Brussels and Washington. Sinar Ulgen is with the Center for Economics and Foreign Policy Studies, a research organization in Istanbul. He says the Ukrainian conflict offers an opportunity to Ankara. The world has entered a new era, somewhat similar to the Cold War, will also emphasize uh, Turkey's geostrategic importance. And as a result of which, there will be an opportunity for Turkey and its Western allies, and here particularly the United States, to try to resolve the outstanding issues on a more constructive Note. Ankara's close ties with Moscow have deeply strained relations with its NATO partners. Erdogan's backing of Ukraine comes as he's already working to repair relations with others, including Armenia and Israel, moves that have also drawn praise from the West. Sezin Erner is a political columnist for Politik Yol, a Turkish news portal. She says that despite such efforts, Turkey still faces significant obstacles to any reset in relations with its Western partners. I do not see the return back to old alliance structures anymore. Not unless there is a very big change in Turkey and Turkey moves towards democracy and rule of law and respect of human rights. And we don't foresee that at this point, not with this government. So I don't think so, but there might be coinciding interests. There might be new coinciding interests developing, so there might be cooperation. Rights groups say Turkey is one of the biggest jailers of journalists globally, while its treatment of government opponents and its Kurdish minority continue to draw international criticism. Ankara rejects such criticism, insisting it's a law-abiding country. But some analysts suggest Ankara may be calculating that any return to Cold War-like diplomacy could, as in the past, see Turkey's Western allies placing security concerns ahead of democracy. 
Ulgin says such a calculation is misplaced. Turkey would find itself in a more positive environment based on its geostrategic importance. But this is an environment where the overriding analysis, especially from the side of the White House, is one of global competition between democratic countries and authoritarian states. Democratic reform is currently not on the Turkish political agenda. Moreover, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's decision not to visit Turkey, despite Washington's praise of Ankara, is also widely interpreted by analysts as a signal that relations still have a long way to go before they can be considered normal. Dorian Jones of VOA News, Istanbul. The United Nations received only $1.3 billion in pledges on Wednesday towards a $4.27 billion aid plan this year for war-torn Yemen, where humanitarian drive had seen funding dry up even before global attention turned to the conflict in Ukraine. The United Nations hoped to raise over $4 billion. UN bodies said more than 70 million people in Yemen need food assistance, and this could rise to 19 million in the second half of the year. UNAID chief Martin Griffith told a news briefing that aid agencies were already forced to cut back or stop food, health, and other vital assistance in Yemen, where the economy and basic services have collapsed in the 70-year war. The UN received just over half of the $3.4 billion needed in 2020, while last year donors gave $2.3 billion. The World Food Program warned on Monday that without substantial new funding, mass starvation and farming will follow. UNA Chief Martin Griffiths. I just opened the envelope of what we've heard today. Thank you very much. And I'm pleased to announce we heard 36 donors pledge nearly $1.3 billion for the humanitarian response in Yemen. But let us be under no illusions. We hoped for more. And it is a disappointment that we weren't able as yet to get pledges from some we thought we might hear from that we do stand in solidarity with the people of Yemen. And I'm struck by how generous, for example, many donors have not been affected in their pledges by the demands being placed on them by the Ukraine crisis. So that's welcome. The dire situation that we heard so vividly from Angelina Jolie is one that needs money, funding, urgent, rapid, in the bank for the people of Yemen. You can be sure that we will be following up to see if we can increase this sum so that we could, at a minimum, reach the levels of funding that we saw last year, at a minimum. That's UNH Chief Martin Griffiths. A powerful earthquake with a magnitude of 7.3 jolted Japan's northeast coast on Wednesday, shaking buildings as far away as Tokyo, where it left hundreds of thousands without power, and reviving memories of a devastating quake 11 years ago. The Japan Meteorological Agency said the tremor hit off the coast of Fukushima Prefecture, some 275 kilometers northeast of Tokyo, and at a depth of 60 kilometers. Authorities said it triggered a fire alarm at a turbine of the crippled Fukushima Daiichi plant, adding that they were checking the situation. That plant was devastated by a magnitude 9 earthquake and following tsunami in March 2011. Authorities issued a tsunami warning for the region for as high as one meter, with public broadcaster NHK reporting waves of 20 centimeters in some places. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. 
Iran claimed responsibility for a missile barrage that struck early on Sunday in Erbil, saying it was retaliation for an Israeli strike in Syria that killed two of its revolutionary guards. Iran's revolutionary guards said on their website that they launched the attack against an Israeli, quote, strategic and, quote, center of conspiracy in Erbil. They did not elaborate, but in a statement said that Israel had itself been on the offensive citing the strike in Syria. Reporter Andrew Omar discussed if Iran's attack could increase the tension in region between Israel and Iran with James Jeffrey, former ambassador to Iraq and Turkey and special envoy to the global coalition to defeat ISIS. Well, the tension between Israel and Iran is already very high. What this does is it uh, is a pattern of Iran using not just drones and uh, rockets, but ballistic missiles with very large warheads to strike at other countries. These other countries have included Saudi Arabia, uh, targets in Syria, repeatedly in Iraq, and through its surrogates, other countries. This is a very dangerous development. The administration tied down in other things and trying to get a conclusion to the uh, Iranian nuclear deal has been basically ignoring this. This is a mistake. Sooner or later, Iran is going to step too far, just like Russia did in Ukraine. This is what happens when you do not respond in one way or another to aggressive behavior. In an interview with Associated Press in December, Marine General Frank McKinsey said that while the U.S. forces in Iraq have shifted to a non-combat role, Iran and its proxies still want all American troops to leave the country. How do you think the U.S. will respond? Uh, The U.S. has no intention of withdrawing its forces as long as, A, there is a mission, and that mission is to defeat the Islamic State, which most recently was seen uh, launching a major assault on a prison holding its uh, uh, former members in Syria, and B, uh, as long as the Iraqi government uh, wants us to stay and doesn't ask us to leave. Uh, We still have an Islamic State uh, challenge, and the Iraqi government hasn't asked us to leave, so the United States has every intention of staying on, along with, I want to underline, the many coalition partners in the coalition to fight ISIS, as well as NATO, all of whom are there with the same purpose. The Biden administration decided last July to end the U.S. combat mission in Iraq by 31 December, and U.S. forces gradually moved to an advisory role last year. The troops will still provide air support and other military aid for Iraq's fight against Islamic State. Do you think Iran's attack will change the U.S. troops' mission? No. First of all, the U.S. troops' mission for the last few years has been primarily advised Uh, equip, train, uh, and when needed, conduct raids, mainly air raids, in support of um, Iraqi or in Syria, uh, Nazi Syrian requirements. That will not change the um, redesignation of their mission as we did in Iraq with our forces back in 2009, uh, following the uh, invasion in 2003, is basically a semantic change. It doesn't mean anything. Nor will Iran stop its efforts to try to get us out simply because we've renamed the exercise. That's James Jeffrey, former ambassador to Iraq and Turkey and special envoy to the global coalition to defeat ISIS, speaking with reporter Angie Omar from Washington, D.C. The deadly mosquito-borne virus Japanese encephalitis is sweeping across Australia, where the youngest patient is four months old. 18 people have been infected so far. Two men have died. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. 
Japanese encephalitis is a disease of the brain. Severe cases are rare, and experts have said that fewer than 1% of people who contract the mosquito-borne virus will experience symptoms. But they can be serious and include lifelong side effects, including speech and movement disorders. Most people, however, don't know they're infected, while others might suffer a mild flu-like illness. Japanese encephalitis is endemic in much of Asia and parts of the Pacific, but authorities don't know how it arrived in Australia. Outbreaks were common in northern Australia in the 1990s, and scientists have said it's been detected ever since, during the Southern Hemisphere summers. However, the outbreak in southern parts of Australia is unprecedented. Migrating water birds are thought to bring the virus into new areas. Farmed pigs are what are called amplifier hosts, which harbour the virus. It spreads when mosquitoes bite an infected bird or pig, and when they bite a person. Human-to-human transmission is not thought to be possible. Dr David Williams is the leader of the Emergency Disease Laboratory Diagnosis Group at the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness. For the first time, and this is really unprecedented, we're seeing this very large outbreak in southeast Australia, in the southeastern states of Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria. We think it's probably been supported by the La Nina climatic conditions that have been prevailing over the last season that's that's led to generally wetter conditions, some of the flooding that we've seen in some parts, and, and that's really supported mosquito breeding sites. But also those wetter areas in the southeast have attracted water birds, so the migratory water birds are attracted to waterways, and when that happens, they can bring viruses with them. The government has recently purchased from suppliers in the Australian market 130,000 doses of a Japanese encephalitis vaccine for at-risk communities. It's also spending millions of dollars advising Australians on how to avoid mosquito bites and eradication programs. Dengue and Ross River fever, which can cause severe arthritis and muscle pain, are other mosquito-borne infections in Australia. Malaria was declared eradicated from Australia in 1981, although up to 800 cases are reported each year and travellers have been infected elsewhere. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. A World Bank study has found South Africa to be the most unequal country in the world with women of color hit hardest by unemployment and gender-based violence, both made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. While analysts say apartheid and poor governance are to blame, community aid groups are working to address the issue. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. The consequences of inequality are playing out every day in the historically black community of Soweto. The nonprofit group Phenomenal Women, which supports victims of gender-based violence, was due to open this office space nearly a year ago, but it was destroyed by vandals. Organizers say it's another side effect of high unemployment, rising drug use, and crime. Phenomenal Women has expanded its work beyond gender-based violence. This hub was intended to offer skills training and a community library and act as a base for its food drives. It's also collaborating with community agricultural programs to create jobs for youth. The idea is to break the cycle of violence and poverty with opportunities. The issue goes back generations. The World Bank found that the country's history of racial segregation is continuing to leave black Africans economically disadvantaged. 
Better education and more equitable land ownership are among the solutions. The country already has affirmative action legislation that prioritizes hiring historically disadvantaged groups. But some experts say the policy has been abused and allowed nepotism and corruption, keeping the wealth in the hands of a few. Despite the challenges, he says black South Africans are increasingly among the country's wealthiest people. The World Bank says the government's taxation and wealth redistribution programs have made life better for the poorest. But the gap is widening, and with relentlessly rising unemployment rates, parents like Swartz are left wondering if their hard work would be more fruitful abroad. Whether it's for major improvements at home or new prospects abroad, the inequality has many South Africans wishing for a better life. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. International Edition on the Voice of America on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time I am Chine Dwarf in Washington wishing you a wonderful day this is the voice of America Washington Papa